Well, let me, let me uh, wish you blessed Lent. I never know what to do. You don't say happy Lent. I don't know how you welcome people to Lent. Lent um, in many churches throughout the world is a season of about 40 days of getting ready for Easter. And it, if you have friends from more traditional liturgical churches, on Wednesday you may have seen them with uh, smudges on their forehead, maybe in the form of a cross. The ashes are symbolic of repentance. And, and that's a, a big part of Lent, of getting ready for Easter. If you'll join us this year in the celebration of Lent, personally and corporately, I think you'll find the each Easter celebration all the richer. At our Maundy Thursday service, which is amazing, Jeff Doyle leads us in that. You don't want to miss our Maundy Thursday service. And then, of course, Easter itself. Um, on our website, there, is, there are a number of resources. If you go to our website and just do a search for Lent, it'll pull up a bunch of Lenten resources for your family, music that's been written for the season you could listen to, and this devotional guide called The Journey to the Cross. It's a, a brief daily devotional. You could do it in less than 10 minutes, or you could probably spend an hour with it every day. And if you wanted to start today, you would turn to the part that says the first Sunday in Lent, and then it'll have something for you to read in Scripture and a devotional every day. And it's really, really well done. Here's, a, here's an explanation from it about what Lent is. It says, Lent is a season of preparation and repentance during which we anticipate the death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday of Jesus. It is this very preparation and repentance aimed at grasping the intense significance of the crucifixion that gives us a deep and powerful longing for the resurrection, the joy of Easter. As the title of this devotional suggests, Lent is a journey to the cross, meditating on our sin and weakness, looking to Jesus as our perfect example and substitute, and being heightened in our worship of His victory over Satan, sin, and death. So, let me encourage you to look that up and look into it. Maybe this afternoon you'll have a bit of time just to, just to relax and slow down and meditate and reflect on that. Um, as part of our celebration of Lent together as a church family, we will be taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday now between now and Easter as part of readying ourselves spiritually for that great celebration on, on Easter Sunday. And this connects really well with our study of the Gospel of Matthew as well, because in Matthew now, we are entering the, the final hours of Jesus' life in chapter 26, the final days of His life. And Lord willing, we'll work through Matthew and get to the point where Jesus is resurrected on Easter, which is always a good thing from what I hear. Um, but today, if you open your Bibles to Matthew 26, that's where we'll be. And as you think about Matthew 26 with me, uh, some of you are Canadian, and you know that, that in your country, in Canada, they refer to something called the goal. Back in 1972, Canada was locked in, their, with, in a battle with their arch-rival Russia in in a hockey series of eight games, and with the series tied um, even up at three games each, the deciding game, with 34 seconds left, a fellow named Paul Henderson scored the goal. And if you are, as I understand it, an aging Canadian, you know where you were on September 28, 1972, when the goal was scored. Um, they say that children at the time were watching in auditoriums across Canada in their schools started spontaneously singing the national anthem. 
People dropped plates and broke them. Fishermen fell out of boats. And some 25 years afterwards, people would stop Paul Henderson on the street and say, you're Paul Henderson. You scored the greatest goal in hockey history. It was what we might call one for the ages. Okay. Um, that's what they called uh, Tiger Woods' victory at the Masters in, in uh, oh, there's a picture of Paul. He's the, he's the happy guy. Um, <laughs> Tiger Woods in uh, 1997 won his first Masters, first, first African-American to ever win the Masters, broke the color barrier, smashed it, won by 12 strokes, and they called it one for the ages, 21 years old. Some of you will remember this, Kerry Scruggs, one-legged vault that won the gold for the Olympics for the United States in 96, one for the ages. Some of you, sadly, others happily, will remember this, the shot where Christian Leitner took down Kentucky at the buzzer uh, back in 92 in the NCAA tournament. Um, I had a chance to witness one of these one for the ages kind of moments when I lived in Texas. I went to a Rangers baseball game, and I saw Nolan Ryan throw his 5,000th strikeout. No one's ever done that. I was there against Ricky Henderson, and if you look real close, you can see me. I'm sitting way, way up there, okay, over there in the nosebleed, but I still remember it. I was there. I'm not even a baseball guy, and I still remember it, and it's not just baseball that these kind of one-for-the-ages things happen. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember this. Others of you have seen the video. You get a sense for its importance. When Neil Armstrong took that first step onto the moon, uh, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, it was, it was one for the ages. And even if you weren't there, um, if you hear a recording or watch a video, sometimes you can sense the significance of it. If it's a sport, uh, kids reenact these things in driveways and backyards. They become those players. They redo those things for decades after they happen. Um, today, we have a really remarkable privilege. We have a chance to look in, in Matthew 26, on an act of worship that Jesus says is one for the ages. In fact, he says this is going to be proclaimed all around the world with the gospel, this act of worship that we're going to look in on today. So if you'll open to Matthew 26, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll look at this amazing act of worship together. Father, come now and help us see the worship you love so that we might emulate it. Mark us by your word today as wholehearted worshipers of you, that we might offer you beautiful worship. So help us now by your word and spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And these words are, are freighted with meaning, so I want to slow down a little bit and think about it almost uh, phrase by phrase this morning, because Jesus has finished all of his teaching. There's only one great lesson that remains, and that is... Um, the message of his sacrificial suffering and glorious resurrection on our behalf. Someone has called Matthew's gospel a passion story with a long introduction. Okay. We're at that story. This is, this is the final week, the final days of Jesus' life on earth prior to his death. Now, 
this, what, what we're reading here, likely is happening on a Tuesday evening as his crucifixion draws near on that first Good Friday morning. He says it'll be Passover in just two days. And Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And Dale Bruner does a marvelous job with this portion of the the text in connecting that Passover long ago with the Passover that Jesus is about to celebrate with his disciples and then fulfill with his life in a remarkable way. This is what he says. He says, Jesus' Passover will become the world's Passover, where once the angel of death passed over the blood on the doorposts of believing Israel's home, The next three chapters of Matthew will show how the blood of Jesus shields the angel of eternal death from the doors of believers' homes everywhere. And Jesus predicts that he's going to be delivered up to be crucified. Another way to say it is to be handed over. And that expression of being handed over occurs no less than 14 times in Matthew 26 and 27. And Bruner writes about it. He says, everybody, it seems, is handing Jesus over to somebody else. Judas hands him over to the high priests. The high priests hand him over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the soldiers. The soldiers hand him over to death. But in that passive voice of being handed over is the work of the sovereign God, the major source of every handover, above, beneath, Behind and within all of the evil human handovers is one good divine handover. The handover of Christ is the Passover of the world. He says, Jesus not only suffers the passion, he orders it. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus says he's going to be delivered up not just to death, but to be crucified. He knows not only that he's going to give his life, but he knows the means by which the Romans will use to take it crucifixion. The next verse, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the chief priests were the professional clergy of their day. So, so that Dale Bruner translates this in his commentary as the senior pastors, okay? I personally don't like that translation, not real fond of that, that I'm, I would be associated with the chief priest like that. But you need to know that he also calls the elders there the lay leaders. So just keep that in mind as, as you read it. The intent of their gathering in their religious palace is nothing less than murderous. They are scheming to take Jesus' life, but they cannot carry out their plan, at least not immediately, because they're afraid of a riot because of all the people who are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem typically is a city about the size of Wake Forest, 20,000, 30,000 people. But during Passover, that population would increase fivefold to where there might be 150,000 people. You thought meat in the street was crowded. Um, Imagine five times as many people as live here in our city, our little city. And so that when Jesus 
entered that city on that first Palm Sunday, that, that triumphal entry, there had to be tens of thousands of people welcoming Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, as he entered the city. The religious leaders are smart enough to know they cannot pull off his death without a riot during that time. They'd have to wait until after the Passover. Or would they? Something's about to happen that's going to make it possible for them to take Christ's life even during the Passover celebration. Um, What Matthew does now, he's going to flip his calendar back a couple of pages to the Saturday night before Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. And he does that so that he can explain how it was, what triggered these religious leaders' ability to put Jesus to death on the Passover, as the Passover sacrifice for us. What, what caused that? What brought it about? But he also wants to show us an act of worship that takes place in the midst of all this treachery and scheming that Jesus is going to say, this, this is one for the ages. Uh, this is one you need to, to pay attention to. There are two people in our story who have very important messages for us. Listen closely. They are for us. They are for each of us. We want to listen very attentively to what they say. So in verse 6, when Jesus was at Bethany, now this is again Saturday, uh, Matthew's backed us up a couple days. This is the Saturday before Palm Sunday when Jesus entered that last week. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem, essentially a couple miles outside the city. And while the leaders are scheming in the opulence of their palace, right, Jesus is is having a meal, sharing a meal with friends in the home of a leper. Now, this same story is told not only by Matthew, but by Mark and by John. And John especially brings us some additional details I want us to think about. Here's what John says in, uh, this is John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So from John, we learn that Jesus was attending a dinner party at Simon the leper's house, and in attendance was the newly resurrected Lazarus, back from the dead, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, Now, why would a group of Jews be having a meal in the home of a leper? They weren't allowed to associate with lepers. It rendered them unclean. Unless, of course, he was no longer a leper, that Jesus had healed him from his leprosy, and this is just still his name tag. This was common. Jesus commonly healed people even of the worst diseases. And maybe this is why Simon's having the dinner party, to celebrate what Jesus has done for him. Anyway, Martha, in keeping with what we know as Martha's bent, is serving everybody, right? And Mary, also in keeping with what we know about her, is the woman who anoints Jesus with this ointment, this this perfume. 
She is lavishly anointing. And if we look at all the readings, she anoints his head and it runs down on his beard and she anoints his body and then she anoints his feet and wipes it with her hair. Um, The perfume is worth a year's wage of a common laborer. Today we might think twenty to $30,000 worth of perfume she is pouring out on Jesus. This is extravagant worship, and it generates quite a reaction. Back in Matthew 26, verse 8, when the disciples saw it, her anointing, with this costly perfume, they were indignant. They were aggravated. They were ticked off, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, which is a really good point. If I spent 20 grand on a worship service here, say communion, we really upped the wine, you know? You can imagine what the elders would say to me. Why this waste? Jesus doesn't view it that way. In fact, he now rebukes the disciples for their rebuke of Mary. Jesus is aware of this, and he says to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says, this is one for the ages, guys. This is not a waste. This is beautiful, Jesus is saying. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that caring for the poor doesn't matter. Sometimes these verses are used to diminish caring for the poor. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's really not talking about that at all. He's just talking about the imminency of his death and that they need to tend to that. That's that's their great priority. He's only going to be with them a couple more days. In fact, what we learn when we read from John especially is that the disciples were expected to care for the poor throughout their days. They would have time to care for the poor. And evidently, it was their practice to care for the poor from their money bag. The the funds, the pooled funds of the disciples was often used to care for the poor, apparently. But don't miss that Jesus says, this is not extravagant. This is not a waste, what, what Mary has done. This is beautiful. This is beautiful worship. And by saying that, he's making the radical claim that he is deserving of this extravagant, costly act of worship. And he's worthy. There's someone worthy of your greatest, most costly act of worship because of who he is, because he's the Messiah King. And they used to, in the Old Testament at times, would anoint kings like this as part of their coronation as a king. And Jesus is presenting himself as that king. It's also appropriate and beautiful because of what he's about to do. He's about to go to the cross. And Jesus says, she did this to prepare me for my burial. What she has done, Jesus says, this beautiful act, her loving act of worship will be proclaimed throughout the entire world. And there's a a little implication here. The gospel's going to go to the world. Jesus knows it. 
And everywhere it goes, this woman's act of worship is going to be told just like we are telling it this morning. It's one for the ages, Jesus says. What is it about this act that makes it beautiful in Jesus' sight? And what would it mean for you to offer beautiful worship like this? An act of worship that's beautiful in Jesus' sight. Let's walk through this together and think about the shape of her worship from both Matthew and and the other accounts in John and Mark. First of all, and the most obvious one probably, is that beautiful worship is costly. Really costly. We could say it involves our best. It involves our all. Mary, what Mary offers here is likely a great family treasure. A vial of perfume worth a year's wage, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in our currency. Um, but what else would Mary use this for? What could possibly be more worthy? See, Jesus is the man who just raised her brother from the dead. After four days of mourning him, he was given back to her. And now Jesus is saying he's going to lay his life down. Who better to offer this act of worship to than the one who gave her brother back to her? And this kind of extravagant, costly worship is found on occasion in Scripture. Um, you find it in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Chronicles 7. They, they offer as part of a great act of worship in the Old Testament what's estimated to be $40 million worth of meat as a burnt offering. Set it on fire before God. Extravagant, costly. Some people would say, that's a waste. Some people would say, what you're doing right now is a waste. It's a waste of time. You could be doing so much with this time. Bill Gates is cited of saying about Sunday mornings, he says, just in terms of resources, time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. You know, there's a sense in which beautiful worship is wasteful, right? The only one who really benefits from it is God. It's just for Him. There's no higher end. Robin Cover says, Worship involves giving that which is both very costly and very precious, such that God is the only benefactor. Worship involves giving that which is both very costly and very precious, such that God is the only benefactor. It's just for Him. It's all for Him. The Bible presents this idea of costly worship in a real subtle way in something called the, the offering of the first fruits. You offer your, the first of your harvest, your very best of your harvest, to God. The firstborn amongst your flocks was offered to God. Proverbs 3, um, you may have to advance that slide for me. Thank you. Says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. First fruits is contrasted with leftovers. Okay. 
Offer him your first fruits, not your leftovers. Which would you say best describes your worship? First fruits or leftovers? Beautiful worship is first fruits. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. A uh, little, little detail, interesting little detail in Mark's telling of this story. It says, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, uh, as he was reclining at table, a woman came, this is Mary, with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask, poured it over his head. She broke the flask. That's like, she wasn't, she didn't like pull the cork out and just put a little in her hand and rub a little on. She broke it, drained it, emptied it all. There was no turning back. This was it. She was going to give her best. It was going to cost her everything, and she was going to lavish it on Jesus. She broke the jar. She poured it all out as worship. Beautiful worship is costly. In beautiful worship, you have to get a sense as you read this, that beautiful worship involves our affections. Um, it, is, it is unrestrained, uninhibited. This act of anointing was no mere ritual that she was just motoring through. This was a passionate thing. John describes her as wiping the, uh, the perfume on Jesus' Feet with her hair, which a couple of things are really interesting about that. First of all, um, women did not let down their hair in the presence of any man except their husband. Okay. It's not, uh, not so much because of it's sexual, but because of the intimacy of the affection that was only to be shared there. And yet here Mary is with her hair down wiping Jesus' feet. It's like she cannot help herself. Her affection for Jesus is so great. This is the man who just gave her her brother back after he'd been in the tomb for four days. And she's about to explode with gratitude and love and admiration and appreciation and worship. And I cannot help but wonder if Mary doesn't get it, one of the few people who got it, that what Jesus was saying over and over again was really going to happen. He was going to Jerusalem to die. And so she breaks a vial worth more than we can imagine, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Imagine what that, what that felt like for her. What, what kind of passionate love and worship of Christ was swelling up in her because of what he had done for her and her family. But you know, if, if we really slow down and think just for a minute, we don't have to imagine. Most of us, have brothers or sisters or sons or daughters that Jesus has rescued from, from a life, a hellacious life and hell for eternity, given back to us, restored to us. And we have that, we have that own, our own story of rescue and restoration. See, worship is an expression of love it involves our affections and our emotions. It's not a ritual. It's an explosion of love from a grateful heart. And it shouldn't be restrained by worrying about what someone around you might think of you. So that when you come here, 
and it's time to worship? Are you restrained by the way you pour out your love before God in song or physical expression, whether you kneel or lift your hands because you're worried about what somebody might think? Beautiful worship involves our affections. It's unrestrained. It is, it's humbling. You know, John describes, Matthew says she anointed his head and his beard, and John says she's down at his feet, wiping it on his feet with her hair. The washing of feet was a task that was too low for even a common slave to do. But here's Mary giving her, her treasure at Jesus' feet, on Jesus' feet. And that's where worship takes place for us. It is at Jesus' feet. When we come to worship, we're not complimenting a peer. We are bowing before our Savior and our, our God and exalting Him as great. We become small and humble. He becomes great. So this gathering here this morning, it's really not for us. It's for Him. We gather for Him to honor and exalt Him. Are you here for Him? Did you come this morning to offer worship to Him? Beautiful worship is humbling. And beautiful worship can sometimes generate opposition, but when it does, it, it just endures regardless. You know, Mary got a really harsh rebuke for this from no, the disciples, no less. Um, and some of you have experienced this. You, you give your life to Christ, you choose to follow Him, and your family thinks you're nuts. Okay? Uh, some of you know that. I remember when I first came to Christ and started following Him in earnest, and I started um, going overseas on some international mission trips and stuff, one of my family members pulled me aside and he said, um, you know, all this religion, it's good, but I was an engineering student at the time, and he said, you know, just don't let it derail you from, you know, from your job. You got a shot at a good job and some good money. Don't, don't let this religion stuff get you off track with that. Um, You, know, you downsize your house, you downgrade your car, you skip a meal so you can have resources to give to kingdom work, and there are people that are going to think you're crazy. There are people that are going to think that's a waste. Mary says, offer your best worship to Jesus. Offer your most passionate, costly worship to Jesus. Do to him a beautiful thing, no matter what anyone else says. The disciples turn on her. No matter, her worship just continues. Doesn't matter what others think or say, even if they're really significant others. Beautiful worship is undeterred by opposition. And her worship is beautiful because it has the cross in view. Um, she is anointing him for his burial. Uh, the amount of perfume could point to that. The kind of perfume could point to that. Um, Mark says that we're only six days from the cross now. Mary's worship was beautiful because the cross was in view. She was anointing him for his burial, probably more than she knew. And the great 
redemptive act of Christ on the cross is the centerpiece of our worship as Christians. His death and his resurrection. D.A. Carson warns us, he says, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Mary calls us, she's challenging us to offer beautiful worship to Christ. Every time we gather, to come ready to offer beautiful worship to Christ. And throughout the week. But there's a second person who speaks to us as well this morning, and that person is Judas. And the next few verses, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me? If I deliver him over to you, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So on Saturday night, before Jesus had even entered Jerusalem, Judas had determined he was going to sell Jesus out. And all week long, everything we've been reading in chapters 24 and 25, Judas has simply been on the edge trying to figure out a way, when can I betray him? When can I get my 30 pieces of silver? When can I turn him in? And for the price that you would have paid in that day for a run-of-the-mill slave, 30 pieces of silver, maybe a tenth of what that perfume cost that Mary lavished on Jesus, Judas will betray Jesus. How low had Jesus sunk in Judas' eyes that he would sell him out for such a small cost, for so little? Dale Bruner says it would have been one thing for Judas to despair of Jesus and so to abandon him, but it took hatred to hand him over. Why did Jesus flip? Why did he go from being one of the, one of the 12 to being the betrayer? Matthew's careful to point it out. He was one of the 12. He had traveled with Jesus for at least a year, maybe a couple of years. He'd seen all the healings, all the miracles. He'd heard all the teachings. When they had those little come here disciples, private, let me explain it to you sessions, Judas was there. And in this case, John indicates that Jesus was the primary, or Judas rather, was the primary spokesman for the disciples in this matter of rebuking Mary. It was Judas who took the lead. And so he was the one who took the brunt of Jesus' counter-rebuke. And it may be at this point that his pride was smarting from Jesus' rebuke, that his pride may have been hurt. Proverbs warns us that pride goes before a fall. John tells us that Satan was involved here with Judas for sure John chapter 13, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. It says pride's involved, Satan's involved. That there's, a, there's a more subtle motive that may be more right at the core of what was going on with Judas, at least in our teaching. Um, in John 12, it says um, that Judas rebuked Mary not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a thief. 
And you couple that with our passage of him looking to be paid for his betrayal, um, this motivation of greed might be right at the heart of why Judas turned. Greed can usurp our affections for Jesus. Once we love something more than Jesus, we will at least demote or maybe compromise Jesus, whatever we have to do in order to obtain the thing we love more. And this can really, really be subtle, and it comes alongside really good motives. And so we say things like this, honey, if we enlarge the deck, think of the evangelistic gatherings we could host out there. And if we would buy a bigger house, we could host small group if we just had a bigger living room. Um, you know, we could, uh, we could really use a, a nicer car. I think my car's a bad witness. Should Christians really be seen in cars like this? Think, think how a BMW would enhance our witness. And wouldn't the missionaries love spending some time when they're back at that beach house now, wouldn't they? You know, I'm not generally opposed to big decks and houses with spacious living rooms and decent cars. I, I have all three, okay? But watch out for greed. It'll find its way into your heart if you don't, and when it does, it will supplant Jesus there. Jesus himself said in Luke 12, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Take care. Watch out. Be on your guard. And the way you accomplish this, one way anyway, is by letting your giving be more extravagant than your getting. So that people, if they were going to talk about you at all, they'd talk about how much you gave, not how much you had. How fancy it is, how wealthy you look, what you drive, where you live, what you wear. Live simply. Give generously. Judas is warning us quite unwittingly that greed is really, really scary. It will overrun your affection for Jesus and cause you to worship something else more. Has greed, the desire for money, more money and more stuff, caused you to offer less than beautiful worship to Jesus? You know, we tend to want to set Judas aside in a special category as the betrayer, and really he is nothing like us. But I think his story is told for us because he's a lot like us. And there may very well be a little bit of Judas in all of us that we must be on our guard against. So in between the murderous scheming of the religious leaders and the betrayal of Jesus by one, in one of the twelve, we have this beautiful act of worship by Mary. One for the ages, Jesus called it. And now we get to close our worship service with another act of worship that Jesus said was to, was to be for the ages. We are to gather and remember as his people his, his loving death 
and his resurrection on our behalf until he comes, the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood for our sins. So we come to this table sharing in an act of worship that's one for the ages. It's for, it's for every believer everywhere for all time to celebrate when the people of God gather. We come to this table to remember his sacrifice and proclaim his death until he comes. But as you come today, I wonder, what, what could you bring to the table as an act of beautiful worship for Jesus? What is he asking you to do to bring as an act of beautiful worship? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Is there an act of obedience that you could bring? A commitment to obey Christ in an area you've... you've You've not obeyed. Or is there something you need to take on with new fervor? The meeting with God alone in prayer and the Bible daily, maybe especially in the season of Lent, to dive into that daily devotional. To slay greed by giving to those in need or the work of the kingdom in a lavish way, a really generous way, more generous than you've ever been maybe. As you come to the table... Let me encourage you to bring with you the beautiful act of worship that the Spirit is prompting you to give today. Because at this table, it's really where it all leads for us. Um, the leader's scheming, um, Judas' betrayal, it all leads here. Redeemed by a sovereign God for our good. The leader's scheme to put Jesus to death, but they couldn't during the Passover until Judas betrayed and then Christ became our Passover. It all serves his good purposes. The purpose is to bring us into fellowship with him, to allow us access to this table that we might know Christ, that we might remember together today how wide and long and high and deep is his love for us. I like the way Augustine said it long ago. He said, exalt, Christian, you have gained by this bargain. What Judas sold and what the leaders bought now belongs to you. Let's pray.